We had a car crash on the motorway, went into the centre reservation, essentially run across. The detail is not really important here, but I think after the, the point I'd like to focus on is essentially I then experienced PTSD, so that's post-traumatic stress disorder. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm so excited. Early in 2019, I finally have got Lloyd Dean on the line. We've been trying to arrange this for a little while. Uh, and there's so many things that have drawn me to his story, uh, which we'll be going into in, in great detail, I hope. Um, so, But he is the head of digital and innovation lear innovative learning, my God, it's a mouthful, Lloyd, uh, at EDF Energy. Um, he's been a podcast host, he's a kids football coach, he's also a father, and then I love that he supported the, the Movember uh, charities by going sober all of last year. So just an all-round interesting guy. Welcome to the show, Lloyd. Thank you for having me. Thanks for, for joining us. So um, as you know, this is all about adversity, and we want to get a little bit of context from people's stories about things that they've been through, but also you know, what you've learned along the way. So I'm curious, I guess, if we go right back to your childhood, not to make it a therapy session or anything. Wow, but yeah, that's a, I know, right? <laughs> a big start. <laughs> well, I'm always curious about, do, do did your parents or the education system kind of set you up for the real world? Like, did you feel like you had all the emotional and resilient kind of learning and support in order to set you up for life? Um, I suppose you could, you could rephrase that question as, did you have like a normal upbringing, right? Um, yeah, well... Uh, and I, I read a great quote the other day. Um, what's normal to a to a spider is chaos to a fly. So I think um, we're all different. Uh, and so in many ways the answer is yes, but also in many ways no, because we can see we can be so um, we, introspective. You know, sometimes we can have two and two and get seventy two. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think one of the the key things from my childhood. I'm one of seven. Wow. Um, so that what itself was a little chaotic, but also very good because you get to, to manage and deal with the chaos. Where were so you I in think, the? Where are you in the pecking order? Uh, how do I say the fourth oldest, third youngest? Uh, right, one of those somewhere in the <laughs> middle. middle. Child, nearly middle, middle child. Um, so that's good. I think I mean, you mentioned there that I'm working uh, within innovation. Yeah. So I think one of the things that my experiences when I was younger really brought up is this element of creativity, because I think. If you focus on music, which is an insp a creative inspiration for lots of different people, I was just exposed to a range of different music from um, my sister being a classically trained pianist, my dad playing his saxophone, through to another sister listening to Madonna or brothers listening to. So all of these things, as well as you know, music's one example, you, you get to experience in a non-judgmental way. So as, as I've gone older, I think that's that certainly helped with creativity, both in my personal life and and career. Um, and school, your question about did the education set me up, you know, I, I just see schools as really a factory. Um, I probably ex excelled, it's a, maybe, a, maybe a wrong word, but advanced and owned my education, 
um, in the latter part of my teen years and as I went to college and then university. I was probably just existing before then in education. Okay. And it, yeah, it's an interesting topic in general. Just, you know, we, we can learn resilience without realizing it, right? Just through yeah. the, the community or even if it doesn't go well, those are the things that can build us uh, later on. But absolutely, it can absolutely just be a factory prepare you for a set world that is changing so rapidly that it isn't necessarily fit for purpose anymore. And that's quite difficult, I think. I mentioned the creativity bit. Sometimes people who think um, differently, um, a factory and a standardized system is not supportive uh, of those individuals. Um, Yeah, so I probably have the challenge with my daughters as they go through education is to just to try and encourage that at home that just because they're doing their maths homework and they're not always getting to the same starting or finish point as everyone else, that's not the end of the world. They can get to it. The journey's going to be different. But um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is the education system's the set journey is very linear and it's kind of built around standardization. Learning is obviously, is also one of my strong interests. So I, I'm digressing here and I can carry on if you, yeah, if you yeah, wish yeah. for me to do so. No, I'm fascinated as well, because I don't think we all need the same learning outcomes either. You know, like I didn't go to school as a kid because I was raised in hippie communes and it was all alternative and then had to play catch up as an adult. And like it really affected my self-worth. I thought like everyone else just knew something that I didn't know. But it's only as an adult that I'm able to now appreciate the the creativity, the resourcefulness, the uh, being able to adapt, like all these other skills that have actually helped me in, you know, an entrepreneur's sort of life or things that they don't necessarily set you up for in traditional education. So um, as you know, the theme is uh, around adversity, and I'm just curious within your lifespan, sort of what that, what brings up for you. So when we think of adversity or challenges, you know, what comes up for you? What were some of the main things that maybe affected your life? I think there's some atypical uh, responses, but the key one for me around four or five years ago I was in a different job and I was uh, traveling home uh, as a passenger in a car. Um, we had a car crash on the motorway, went into the center reservation, um, to essentially run across. The detail is not really important here, but I think after the the point I'd like to focus on is essentially I then experienced PTSD. Mm. Uh, so that's post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, how did I even start to think that, you know, little things like when people shut the doors, it was like, hmm. That's extremely loud um, and startling. And I was getting scared about things that I didn't really feel quite fearful of. You would assume that driving in a car after an incident like that would bring up things anyway. But it was incidents where I, all of us, were completely normal um, and, and done a million times. But I started overthinking or becoming nervous and anxious about. Um, and so that was, that was a really, uh, that was the start of a, of a tough, uh, tough journey. Um, but I call it, I purposely use the words um, journey and experience rather rather than suffering because it's taught me lots about myself um, and brought me, yeah, made me more aware of lots of different other experiences um, in my life as well. And so would you say that before this traumatic incident took place, did you have any predisposition as far as you're aware to, to I don't know, anxiety or uh, any type of uh, sort of mental health issues? Yeah, I think predisposition is a is a good word. Maybe uh, without even knowing about it, some of us are more susceptible um, to experience some things through an amalgamation of our experiences throughout life. Yeah. Um, I went through EDMR. EMDR. 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 Yes. Yeah. Um, the, it's like trauma specialist therapy, right? 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. With a, with a tapping of the hands and you know following the eyes, and it's, it's very unique. And um, it, it was through that those conversations in there that I probably probably realised there are things that happened early on um, that probably meant that um, other people may have had a different response to the car crash, which which some did. Um, but I forget your original question to that. Um, can you just remind me? Yes, yeah, so I was wondering if you if you had a predisposition to some of these. Oh uh, yes, like anxiety and stuff like. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think. Um, I think as you grow, especially in your teen year, everyone you knows this, this is a tough time, isn't it? A very tough time. Um, so the normal things through there. I recall my uh, my grandmother passing. I was in, in my late teens, and that was quite difficult. Probably the first time uh, experienced depression um, in particular, mm. um, which um, is always associated with anxiety in some way. Um, so that that's been that. I think like everyone, there's this there's this level of imposter syndrome that you know people have, and um, as you grow up you have to manage that and deal with create strategies to to help with that so that that's been one thing but um yeah does that answer what is it kind of what yeah, you're yeah. Looking? so so i guess just for education for the audience right it's thinking is it just traumatic event equals post-traumatic stress and it all comes up then or is that actually almost highlighting or it's something that just makes worse you know other things that maybe you know the way you've learned to cope with life uh, it, just in a much worse way because of the PTSD? It's a good question because I think um, certainly I went on this journey with PTSD and at, at times, yeah, even you know, day, day to day um, now, you you have these um, experiences and it's now I can go, okay, that's, that's uh, PTSD. But at the time it becomes a conversation of, oh my God, this is me and there's something wrong with me. But when you can approach the question and say, actually, I'm, I'm experiencing these things because of bad things that have happened to me before, you can have a lot more um, self-compassion uh, when you come at it from that angle. And so, um, uh, so again, for our listeners who might not be familiar with, with PTSD, there, we can obviously understand the cause and effect. You've had a traumatic incident yeah. with a car crash. Uh, and and th- whatever the surrounding details were about that, you begin noticing that you're not quite the same as before. So noises, you know, t- talk us through just a little bit more of those symptoms. Yeah. And at what point you were like, oh, I got to do like, what's going on? Yeah. So the, the most obvious um, ones I mentioned there are about uh, noises. So people riding past bikes and all of a sudden that, that is an experience itself. Um, the noise, yeah. the momentum, so on going past. Um, and so you can, the most obvious place to, to replicate, I think a lot of PTSD sufferers will, will experience places like cinemas, uh, shopping malls, and stuff like that. There's lots of people, there's, there's a, a chaotic environment, if you like. Everything seems quite rushed. Um, quite often people will have um, typical things, say typical, but um, things you would think of like insomnia as well. Um, uh, but then for me at the particular time, it was intrusive thoughts, um, you know, and maybe being in a certain environment where you know there's a rational part of yourself that you know you are completely safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually a PTSD sufferer would really, really struggle in that environment. So if you if you look at a lot of people who served in the armed forces, where PTSD is quite common in those, and um, things like bonfire night can be a, um, a very tricky night for those individuals to get through because it brings up the feelings and sensations of the PTSD. Of course. So I think my daughter might have just entered the room. But I she saw, but it was as if you had a ghost because there the door <laughs> opened and then it closed again, but we didn't see yeah. anyone. <laughs> okay, I apologize for that. Um, yeah, and I'm just trying to think. What could, could you get into a car again? Uh, yeah, it took a while. That um, I can imagine. 
it took a while. And then I suppose, actually, I, it took a while. Then I got back on and probably, and probably put too much pressure on myself. And then it, I kind of digressed and then went on a journey, um, excuse the pun, um, <laughs> it, uh, with that experience. The, the, the other, there's a few more other symptoms that I can share if you like. And Please, yeah. PTS, PTSD, which is sometimes this peculiar sensation of not kind of feeling, at its worst, I would say, of not so always feeling real. Uh, and um, you're kind of separated um, from things and become paranoid and hypervigilant um, and stuff like that. And um, and I say that now because I've gone through that experience. You recognize those things. And when you can say, okay, this is not me, this is the PTSD, it makes it a, a whole lot easier. Did it begin to affect relationships, friendships, uh, your mood in general, or what was the sort of impact in that way? Yeah, it affects everything. Because you, for, for a start, if you if you avoid driving places, there's a lot of situations um, that are highlighted on a day-to-day basis. Um, yeah, impacted things like work. I remember I was teaching at the time, and I, I recall going in and having conversations with the people, and another thing that it PTSD sufferers can experience is um, a lack of con- being able to concentrate. Because mm. so of te- that hypervigilance, right? So you're just like yeah, just, aware that something could hit and yeah. It's, um, it's, it's hard to describe, but the ability not to be able to concentrate is um, quite discomforting. I always, the analogy I say is, you know, your, your battery on your phone's at 3% and you're just constantly recharging it from 3% to 0%. Um, yeah, yeah. And when you can't find moments to go out and recharge, it becomes difficult. Um, and so that that was that that was hard um, in particular. And then we're so it's showing up at work. It's affecting relationships. You're you're maybe you're maybe isolating a bit more. Your social life might be suffering. Just you know, and so you've got the internal struggle of what the hell is going on. And then uh, I mean, often people describe on this show uh, like rock bottom moments or moments where it just gets so bad that they realize they need to force themselves to get some kind of help did did, did did is that your experience or did it just feel like symptoms are frequent enough that i now know i need to do yeah something? it wasn't that romantic i'd say um, <laughs> <laughs> i think it was an ongoing ongoing thing um where i kind of first of all you think about going to speak to someone and see someone i uh, a therapist and that itself becomes a big deal Seems silly now describing it, um, but we're not educated on these things. No, you know, um, we just going to a therapist is hard enough. Hopefully, we'll get to a place one day where we've got, I don't know, like a glass door review policy of or therapist that um, because it's so open. But yeah, that, that I was, think that's, that was, should happen though. Yeah, I'm a therapist should, myself. I think it's important. Well, it does. The the rapport is, you know, I've seen quite a few that <laughs> the rapport is vitally important, um, but we just forget about that. Yeah, so you get to that point, and I, I, I suppose um, I mentioned um, going going sober all of last year for the Movember Foundation, and one of the reasons for doing that was, on a personal note, I sometimes used to just, you know, I'd go to alcohol, not in not in um, not in a stereotypical kind of drowning my sorrows, but I knew within myself that that was using it as a as a cover as a mask to um, alleviate some short-term feelings and then the day subsequent to that would be um, challenging so I thought that was the correlation there of the significance of giving up for a whole year um, and then mm, there are moments where you, you become upset and um, go into sorrow and then I suppose the, the key moment um, the key moment, if you like, is that you make a you make a decision, and at that point, that you know, there's an adrenaline rush. It becomes it's serious, exciting at the same time. But for me, that was as I mentioned, going to see see my therapist. Um, 
for the first instance because I felt like I was st- starting to take control of the situation. Um, so it's that lead up, the fear of the unknown that can kind of prevent. And then also like you're a man, obviously, um, and, and there's some additional conditioning around it being okay to ask for help. And you're also in a particular industry where it might be less, you know, uh, normalized to ask. For, I, I don't know. Do you think there's there's something specifically on men and masculinity around that side of things? Uh, 100%. Well, if we look at the, the data, so um, in the UK, one... No, sorry. In the UK, three out of every four suicides are male. Yeah. Um, We know that by 2030, it's predicted by the World Health Organization that prostate cancer will be the biggest cancers, killer of cancers um, for both male and female. And it's only applicable to one uh, one gender type. So when we when we just focus on those facts, what's happening there? There's a story to to be told. uh, and that's why I picked the Movember Foundation, really, because they, they focus on those items and the uh, the mental health capacity. Um, so, yeah, let, let's be honest. Speaking about this is, for men is, is, is a weakness. Um, it's, perceived, it's perceived as a weakness yeah. in a Western um, society, um, for sure. Um, I think uh, men have a, a troublesome time because they're meant to... Um, live up to this stereotypical image, um, being the breadwinner, being masculine, being big and strong, um, the strong, silent type. Um, I think is what Tony Soprano used to mention a lot, if you've seen his yeah. Yeah. therapy <laughs> sessions of Sopranos. Um, yet at the same time, when men are together, they don't really communicate. There's a, there's a falseness about when men are together sometimes, especially in groups. Um, uh, so if we <laughs> take the pub, for example, it's... it's uh, original design was re- really around the whole labor movement for for men and the working men's club and they'd be working all day and they go to the, the public house and then have beer and things weren't really discru- discussed but at the same time there was a level of um connection mm. um bonding uh, yeah where things could be relieved but um men struggled to go down to the deep I say men. I'm talking in general terms here, but um, statistically, more more than uh, more than not, men find it easy to stay at that superficial, let's almost say bullshit level, <laughs> without yeah, going the banter into banter level. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrible word, that isn't it? And uh, without going into a um, uh, the deep connection, and not all need that. Not all men, I think, really understand that or have the skills. But at the same time, I think by the data alone we know that an awful amount of men and women are experiencing um, difficult times you know you have to look at the increase of um with the usage of uh, antidepressants um over the last 10 15 20 and plus years to show that there is there is things going on in, in men's head but there's a big barrier there um, so yeah so you, you have to you have to live with that thou shall be judged right when you're in the in those circles but um yeah, you just desperate times. I think uh, mm. pardon? desperate times. You're you you were struggling in a big way, and I guess you had to override some of that um, conditioning. I'm I'm also curious as you're talking of you being one of seven siblings. I assume some yeah. of those are brothers. Um, yes, and I'm curious about within that group if you found, you know, if was that your first community to say I'm struggling or or not? Is that my assumption? Yeah, that's an, uh, that's an assumption. It sounds sometimes opening up to those most closest can actually be the most difficult. Interesting. Uh, yeah. You, you, when you live 
I mean, when you live with a, my wife, you know, that's, you, know, you see each other, don't you? So that's, uh, that's quite obvious that one. Um, yeah. So it was only later on when I had the discussions with them and they were all very supportive, um, which is great, which you would, would expect. Um, but I also think having a large family and lots of brothers and sisters, I mentioned the link to things like creativity and thinking a bit differently <laughs> when, 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 um, maybe, maybe even a little bit scatty. So you, you're not, you're not bound by that normalization process. So you kind of, you know, the shackles are on you a little bit, but you don't care enough. So it maybe is a bit, when you in that environment, it maybe is a bit easier for, um, people like me and larger families, uh, maybe to talk as much, um, compared to maybe a single child who really has mm. you know, just their parents. And, um, so yeah, I, I do think that, that it helped having a large family for me personally. That's useful. Yeah. And every family is different. Um, so just talk us through recovery. Are you recovered? Do you have strategies in place? You've obviously gone to some EMD, EMDR, which is trauma specialist therapy. Like mm. what was that middle bit like of just learning to live with? And I, and bearing in mind, this is really quite recent, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, as far yeah. as the, the impacts. And, and so just talk us through that bit. So you, you go to your therapist, you like relief, you finally have some adrenaline pumping and going, oh, well, let me at least get this sorted. What happens next? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, today, uh, you go back to business as usual, but I've already mentioned there's times you live with it. I think you live with PTSD, you um, recognize it. Um, and you kind of take each day as it goes. I think the uh, if I get to the initial point, it was really um, a lot of things that I realized were being in my life were happening that probably were not helping me. So moving at a very frantic pace, I accelerated. I've accelerated really great with my career, probably at times a detriment to my mental health because I've not been no, I've not put in the time to stop. I've not put boundaries, um, and so I reflected on all of these things. Um, noticed as well that I was doing a lack of exercise and essentially the work of my therapist we would we would go through things like that but also um, the specific therapies would go through experiences in the car and they would process them so the, the whole point with EDMR uh, if no one's ever heard of that before is that a memory becomes locked essentially in your in your mind you've got short-term memory and your long-term normally when we sleep we process a lot of things and process a lot of memories um, coincidentally, when people drink alcohol and they don't have a good night's sleep, that's what's happening. Your body's not processing memories. It's sorting out your liver and, and so forth. The EDMR therapy just helps to unlock those and release those into the long-term memory. It's very hard to describe that process. It's, um, it's quite relaxing, actually, because it, I'd often wake up in the morning and realize my body was processing things from previous sessions I've had. Um, and that helped. And, and of course, um, it's... I very fa quickly found out it's very simplistic to think of the memories in the car car crash were just just about the the, the car. You know, as we've already mentioned, there's a it's like a trigger a, point, right? For exactly whatever's happened in your entire life. It's a branch. These things start branching off, and so we did all of that um, visualization, um, put in an, an exposure strategy um, in place. Um, exposure strategy. Let me describe that. So, um, going through visualizing being in a car, be it, you know, and then working your way up to driving in a particular place and over a period of time. And so that, that's all, um, that's all great. But then there was this bit, I think f for me personally, where I started to have to really recognize that, um, 
being perfect, first of all, is is okay. But uh, you know, we have our own own thing. So I know for me, if I start becoming too ingrained with what, if I start becoming too ingrained with anything, I can become quite obsessive. Mm. Um, and looking out for those types of checkpoints, looking out for potential burnout signs. If I'm doing too much, exercise is great. But at the same time, you you can you can do too much. Um, realizing things that give me positive energy, such as spending time with family, mm. such as turning the you know, little things about coming home, turning the phone off at eight o'clock that I do, putting it away. Um, you know, these things don't always happen, but I find the more I do these types of things, the better I'm able to to deal now on a, on a day-to-day basis with life. <laughs> and, so, and some of those apply to anyone with any mental health issue or any kind of uh, predisposition towards the, you know, uh, overwork or overthinking or those sorts of things, right? So creating balance, thinking about technology, thinking about exercise and food and alcohol and the different things that could uh, just support us in general. And do can you like, if you're out of balance on some of those things, do your PTSD symptoms uh, sort of flare up or? Massively. Yeah, that, that, that happens. Um, and so I've already mentioned a few times, though, to, to be able to recognize that they are PTSD symptoms rather than like, what the hell is going on with me is, is step number one. So you take the um, fear bit away a little bit of like, yeah, oh so my like, God. I've done yeah. a lot of mindfulness stuff to help with the recovery as well, which also is linked to slowing down. Um, and so that also helps. I did a mi- mindfulness course um, I'm an eight-week intensive one, and that again, that was a big eye-opener. Um, and so it's just realizing: have I done these things? How can I, if if I've got a meeting or an appointment the next day that in my mind at that time is super important, how can I get some um, perspective and just prioritize myself? Uh, I think I, that. that mm, sorry, good. go ahead. No, carry on. Sorry. Um, so I was then curious earlier when you were talking about the initial symptoms, you said it was affecting your work and it was showing up at work and affecting, you know, your relationships at work. Um, and so I'm curious how supportive they were or, or what was supportive within the work environment when it came to you being in that messy middle of figuring out what was going on and getting help. I think it affects work in the in the first instance because you, if we don't talk about it, no one knows. Yeah, so of people course. just carry on. Yeah. And uh, so I think it takes a lot. You have to strong. First of all, you have to have, to have a strong rapport with your line manager. It, of course, team members. Like there was one particular team member I sp- talked with a lot, and uh, that person um, was great. Um, and this is where it goes um that we, we branch off again there because in order to be how be able to approach a line manager well you need to have a good line manager you need to have someone who's approachable and that then comes down to are you just turning up for a job or are you select you know, consciously selecting who you work for in terms of people um and maybe you know I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in that position to be able to do that others may not but i, I approached my line manager and yeah, he was fantastic extremely supportive he himself actually had been in the forces, so he was was familiar to PTSD, not himself, but in um, people around him. So that was great. And, uh, you know, we built up a work schedule. So it's little things. Cause I do a lot of traveling to London. If I noticed that traveling would tire me out. And so the day after traveling, the majority of times, unless there was something important, I would work from home. But, excuse me. I would work from home one day a week. And, um, yeah, it's just stuff like that, really. So it's... The conversation with him really just enabled me to take have that um, have that transparency about what I was doing, rather than 
calling in sick or say I was working from home for this particular reason. It was just open, honest. And that itself relieved a lot mm. of the burden from my shoulders. Because that um, is how people end up, I say, acting out really loosely, like, you know, because they need concessions based on what, whatever's going on, but not feeling comfortable or feeling worried about their job if they're going to say, uh, you know, the, the the truth and instead end up taking sick leave or doing those things anyway. Like it, it doesn't enhance work, the workplace in general, but it, there's this kind of fear, isn't there, about just just saying it. Yeah, the wonder, it is 100%. I try and take that on with my, because I now, um, as I said, head up a team. When I have my one-to-ones, when it naturally fits in, I, I will try and share my experiences and share how I'm feeling on that day or that particular week. Because I think there's a, there's also a, a need for, for men in particular. But again, based on the data I mentioned earlier, yeah. Um, to really that for me is leadership, because um, I think in a lot of organisations, mental health, mental health first aid, and um, whatever it's called, whatever people are, however people are addressing the problem, it's quite rare that you you will hear of or actively experience CEOs or directors or you know. Um, people quite senior in the business are promoting it, but they're still not talking about their own personal experiences. And so that's something that I want to do because I've, I hope it may help um, others. Yeah. And I've seen, and that's sort of how we connected, wasn't it? Just um, um, through uh, organizations and knowing that your, your story is sort of out there uh, and you're, you're really, you can tell that you want to in, inspire others and really, um, perpetuate the idea, especially for men, I guess, that mm-hmm. talking is okay or useful or beneficial for you? Like, what's the main message that you want to get out into the world based on your experience? Um, it's okay not to be okay. And having a conversation is is an action itself. I think um, once you realize that you have control, that's very empowering. I think a lot of mental health is the perception of not being in control with what's happening in your life right now. And and a conversation is a starting point. It's you taking action. So um, that's the key message, I would say. Because normally, when you take control, that's a catalyst for a host of other positive um, experiences where you can own what's happening with your life. And then I I guess I'm curious because... how has this, the things that you've learned through this experience affected who you are as a person and who you are in relationship or connection with others? Positive, I hope. And I think, okay. <laughs> um, so I, just, I think it's made me uh, focus on being positive. Um, and actually it's, so it's very easy to be loving. It's very easy to be kind, and like I mean, in a sincere way. Um, and it can that doing those things to other people actually makes me feel makes me feel great. Um, so that that's the the, the key thing. Um, I did for a very short period of time actually take some antidepressants. They didn't work for me or with me, so I came off. Um, but when if you look at there's a book called Lost Connections by I think Johan Hari, mm-hmm. um, and he talks about the research around antidepressants and the feeling they give and the conversation about there's a serotonin issue and it's actually false. <laughs> so um, and it and then a lot of people will get the um, the feeling of, anti, of an antidepressants when they're happy. It's a 
It's called the mm. Hamilton score. I don't know if you're uh, mm. familiar. It's very interesting. And so whenever I have those moments of feeling happy, I'm like saying to myself, this is, this is that moment. So maybe what I'm talking about here is I'm being more mindful uh, with my happiness and, and joy. And I find that's really effect, affecting me in a positive way. But, but also my wife, the, the people in my team, the interactions that happen with my children. Um, um, if you focus on it, you realize that there's lots of great things happening in your life on a day-to-day basis. And it's almost like this, this adversity or this challenge has forced you to revisit or consciously look at you know, your part in uh, nurturing those habits within yourself, choosing to be positive, choosing to have gratitude, to be present, all of those sorts of things that are seem to be enhancing your life and those around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a bit like uh, we're, in, we're in January, aren't we? And everyone's got the New Year's resolution. The, the challenge is keeping those Ill- in the long-term aspect of behavior change. I think that that in particular for a lot of people I, I see as the issue. Um, so trying to build those things into daily daily routines and stuff like that is good. Uh, but I don't think being so prescriptive, as it, I see some people saying, you know, I've got to do this by seven, this by eight, this by nine. Yeah. Um, I'll just have a little um, five-minute journal um, book okay. that I fill out in the morning and the evening. And, and then throughout the day, I'll um, I've set up headspace to give me mindful moments. So I'll just pause and then I'll do 15 minutes when I find time in the day. And that for me is really working and is, is helping me in a long-term basis. I love that because it sounds like you've experimented with different things through a place of desperation and tried to find things that work for you and are constantly maybe tweaking that or adjusting it depending on, on lifestyle, kids, work, all of those sorts of things in order to maintain your mental health given the PTSD. Yeah, well, it has. I think um, this is also a risk that I perceive as I am here today. <laughs> that um, I saw a good quote on this on Twitter, actually. That you know, lots of people will will listen to the podcast, read the books, um, and so forth, but taking action is number one, and it's only through taking action that you'll realise what works for you and what doesn't. And I really, um, the risk also in looking at these techniques is to. Um, when people are communicating about what they do and what's great for them, um, it can sometimes come across in a perfectionist way and very prescriptive, I think. And when people, it doesn't work for people, um, they can beat themselves up and, and let it, let it go. I think really it's finding techniques that work for you because you, you know, you, you know yourself better than anyone really. I love that so much. So it's taking action, even if it's not a perfect formula yet experimenting and and that's the only way that you're going to be able to adapt and learn uh, uh about what works for your unique set of challenges shall we say mm, yeah it's um it's one positive one positive step at a time and the mindfulness course I mentioned earlier actually was quite good that helped that really helped me to say sometimes you, you even if you decide to do things they're not going to be good or bad you're just going to do them regardless um and so Sometimes I would look at a technique and say, I'm just going to do this for a month. And again, that, that really helped because you you remove the emotional conversation. So, but then it sounds like you have found some acceptance that, you know, you, you now do have this condition and you have to take responsibility for uh, putting thing, putting habits in place that allow you to maintain positivity and those things that give you a good life. What's that control thing again? I, um, PTSD might affect me in uh, different ways in the future. But no matter what, I will get to decide how I react to that. That's the Beautiful. key thing. 
uh, beautiful Lloyd. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your story, giving us your, your own vulnerability, but also loads of advice and tips for people who may be suffering, which don't only apply to PTSD, but to everything. And we'll put some of those notes into uh, the show notes as well as where people can find you. Thank you uh, so much for your time and have a great 2019. And you, thank you for your time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through petravelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.